Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson, and this is our July 22nd, 2010 edition of the show. 4.09 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. If you're having a discussion with somebody who is still defending America's war on Vietnam and the name of Jane Fonda comes up, things are likely to get very emotional and irrational and Ms. Fonda will likely be referred to as Hanoi Jane. What is this all about? What does it say about the American psyche and the stories we need to tell ourselves? Intriguing answers to these questions are found in a fascinating new book called Hanoi Jane, War, Sex, and Fantasies of Betrayal. Today we'll be talking to the author Jerry Lemke. Jerry is the author of six books, including The Spitting Image, Myth, Memory, and the Legacy of Vietnam, CNN's Tailwind Tale, Inside Vietnam's Last Great Myth. His opinion pieces have appeared in the Boston Globe, San Francisco Chronicle, Newsday, and the National Catholic Reporter. He's also appeared on uh, several NPR programs, including On the Media. Lemke grew up in northwest Iowa and received degrees from Augustana College, the University of Northern Colorado, and the University of Oregon. He was drafted in 1968 and served as a chaplain's assistant with the 41st Artillery Group in Vietnam. He is currently Associate Professor of Sociology at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. Jerry Lemke, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be with you. Um, it's great to have you. This has been a just a fascinating read and uh, really uh, given me uh, a lot to think about. And so I, I hope we can uh, really get into it and share it with the listeners today. Uh, let me see if I have this right. Uh, there is a real person named Jane Fonda and a mythical character named Hanoi Jane. The myth uh, mixes facts about Jane Fonda with hearsay and fantasy to create a narrative that serves a certain psychological purpose. Is that right. basically it? Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's a good part of it. Yeah, there really is a, there really is a Jane who went to Hanoi uh, in 1972, and uh, that's much of what uh, the myth, the, the legend, uh, the trope uh, of Hanoi Jane is constructed out of, and I think it is uh, a very psychological, uh, the word that you used, in the sense that it helps construct uh, a betrayal narrative for why we lost the war in Vietnam, uh, an alibi, if you will, uh, that we lost the war uh, to the radicals in the streets at home, the liberals in Congress at home that wouldn't let us fight the war that needed to be fought. Uh, and it's a, that betrayal narrative is something that, that lives on uh, very much in American political culture today, not only about Vietnam, but I think uh, uh, increasingly it, it has uh, 
resonance uh, with regard to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yes, I, I, I agree on that, and I, uh, we'll get into, I hope to get into that a little bit later. Sure. So let, let's uh, go, go uh, back a little bit in time sure. to, to Vietnam. So you, you have written at least two uh, previous books dealing with myths related to the Vietnam War experience. Right. So you obviously feel a need to, to examine this. Is there something about this chapter of American history that makes it uh, more prone to mythologizing? Absolutely. Uh, the fact that it was a lost war. Uh, lost wars in whatever culture seem to go down uh, with difficulty uh, by the people uh, in those countries who lost those wars. And there seems to be a, a need to explain away the reasons why they lost, that is to say explain away the, the, the fact that they lost to an enemy that was probably perceived to be their uh, inferior other uh, at some point, uh, and so when they, when uh, people lose a war, whether it's it might be the Confederacy in the South, uh, it might be Germany in World War One, it might be France after its defeat in Indochina in 1954. There's a tendency to turn inward uh, and find the explanation for that loss uh, within uh, within the home population. Maybe we were too weak. Uh, maybe there were those among us who betrayed us, who sold us out, who uh, stabbed us in the back, as was the myth in uh, interwar Germany after World War I. Uh, uh, that trope, the stab-in-the-back legend, uh, uh, grew there. Uh, and uh, so it was after the defeat in uh, in Vietnam for the United States, uh, the need to find some alternative explanation uh, for what happened here. And I, all three of the books that I've written uh, uh, have that as themes, the, the spitting image being about the stories that Vietnam veterans were spat on when they came home, uh, uh, the tailwind tale being about the stories that some POWs were abandoned and left behind and maybe even assassinated uh, by the U.S. government, uh, some people believe. And then, of course, there's the, the Hanoi Jane legend about which my current book is about. And is it that there is, when a country loses a war, there's a sense, uh, not always conscious, uh, of a, an emasculation, and that sort of leads to often putting the blame on some female character? Well, I think in Western culture, certainly within the... I mean, certainly within the 20th century, you know, way, uh, war and masculinity are very much uh, intertwined. They're very much wrapped up together. Uh, men's sense of manhood uh, is somewhat dependent on, on not only how they personally uh, do in the military uh, or in warfare, but even beyond that, uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will are familiar with with the basketball fans saying we lost the game right when they had nothing to do with the game right but people's i live near boston and my goodness i hear that with the red sox the patriots the celtics you know, either we won or we lost right as if we fought the game so in vietnam we lost the war and i think that that has different meaning for men uh, than it does for for women and after Germany's defeat in World War One, uh, stories circulated that women assaulted German soldiers when they came home from the war. They ripped the insignia off their uniforms. They spat on German soldiers. Some of the stories have it. When the French came home from 
Indochina after losing uh, in 1954. Same kinds of stories. Uh, um, uh, soldiers took their uniforms off, they said, uh, because women would attack them. Uh, and, 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 and so it was after Vietnam. Many of the spitting stories have it that it was women or young girls who spat on Vietnam veterans when they came home from their lost war. So there seems to be, I think, that some psychologists, some, some people in women's studies, recognize this rather quickly as being male fantasies. Uh, you know, a sort of a, a, of a projection uh, of their anxiety, their own sense of insecurity, their emotional loss, projecting that onto their, their male other, right, which is, which is the feminine. And they blame not just women, per se, for the loss of the war, but the, quote-unquote, the feminine uh, in the culture for having percolated to the surface and cost us a victory, in this case, in Vietnam. Yeah, the anti-war movement in general as being effeminate. Absolutely. Uh, and, 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 I mean, there's a myths are made of something, right? That's, that's an often, uh, oftentimes a spoken phrase. Women were very important in the anti-war movement. That women have very, been very important in, in anti-war movements throughout history, and we might want to come back to that. But certainly in the Vietnam era, uh, many of the the leading anti-war activists, Cora Weiss, for example, uh, is is one. Uh, uh, Jane Fonda, of course, was important. Uh, Joan Baez was important, and many many other women uh, were important. Plus, then many Vietnam veterans came back from the war to join the anti-war movement, and they they adopted the you know the dress, the the trappings, uh, the styles that at that time, even more than today, were considered effeminate. Uh, I came home from Vietnam in February of 1970, and I grew my hair long immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I began to wear uh, beads, <laughs> and, and I wore a, a peace symbol necklace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and, uh, and, I, and I had my, my girlfriend uh, embroidered my uniform, uh, which I wore, which I still have in my closet, by the way. And so part of that, and so a lot of us Vietnam veterans who came home opposed to the war were then attacked then for that feminine, femininity, you know, of our own, uh, our own expressions. Uh, and, uh, and for some people, of course, this all came together, sort of packaged, sort of got bundled then as the feminine is responsible for the loss of the war. Yeah, yeah, in in everything, whether explicitly female or not, if it has those qualities that that are considered uh, the feminine sure. other, the feminine other, exactly. Which, which uh, you know, I mean, I would argue that that the feminine, those feminine qualities are are integral and natural and normal to all of us. But I think that that male culture in America wants to deny that. Right, it wants to say that there is that we men don't have a feminine side to us, and that there was that brief period after the war in Vietnam where I think I think that that was very, very public. It was very visible. Uh, it was very it was very eminent and uh, very evident. And uh, and some people would like to erase those images from American culture. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with Jerry Lemke, and we're discussing his book, Hanoi Jane, War, Sex, and Fantasies of Betrayal. And 
so is the Hanoi Jane myth propaganda from war apologists, or is it springing from a subconscious place, or is it actually both? Oh my, <laughs> that, that's a great that's a great question. I think it's both. I think it's all of those, and a lot of what my book tries to do is untangle those both, right, mm -hmm. and to and to see. Uh, you know, try to find the, the sources the sources of this. I, I mean, I, I think that the attribution of uh, Jane Fonda's vilification simply to ultra right wing groups uh, is uh, uh, is itself a contribution uh, of my book. I do that, but I think that's kind of only the starting point. Uh, it's only the tip of the iceberg, uh, if you will. Uh, I think that there's a lot more <clears throat> that goes into it. Uh, I mean, one sort of small step further into that uh, is uh, the idea that Jane Fonda, before she came out as a uh, an anti-war activist, was first a sex symbol uh, in Barbarella. Now, I, I got to quickly say that I contest that uh, in the book, but you know, let's run with that for for a moment. The theory there is that uh, as the figure Barbarella in the 1968 film by that title, that she was that she cut this sexy uh, sex kitten uh, figure. Then, a couple of years later, when she comes out as, a, as an anti-war activist, young men who bought into that sexual image of Barbarella feel betrayed. Mm -hmm. uh, they feel as if, here's this woman who rips off this mask, as if to say, ha, I fooled you, you stupid young men. Uh, you bought into this fantasy, right? And now I'm here to tell you that it was a fantasy, and I'm really a, a political activist. Now, I think that some of that might be true, but I don't think that that's I don't think that that's the whole story. In part, uh, and we can continue on this or, or not, or maybe come back to it. But in part, because I don't think that that Barbarella was ever a sex symbol uh, for young men, particularly uh, young men who were GIs in Vietnam in, say, 1969 or 1970. I was in Vietnam in 1969, and I, as I write in the book, uh, pinups uh, on, on men's lockers in then were Playboy centerfolds. <laughs> <laughs> and they were not, they were not Jane, Jane Fonda photos. I, I did a... My own memory on these things is not, not important. I don't write my books from the basis of my own memory. <laughs> so I did advertise for people to send me photographs of their wall lockers because I know that GIs did take those photographs. And, and so I, I ask again, any of your listeners who, who have photographs maybe that they took or maybe their fathers or their uncles took while they were in Vietnam, I would love to see these. Uh, I got only a couple. And uh, and they are, as I remember, only uh, Playboy centerfolds. At least they look that way to me. Uh, no Jane Fonda uh, uh, pinups. So I think that I mean the the point here on this is that the sexualizing of Jane Fonda is itself part of the mythologizing uh, that that constructs uh, this image of Hanoi Jane. And I think that's a post hoc, post Vietnam War phenomenon. Uh, that I, uh, I have tried to to unpack and expose in this book. Yeah, and I want to make sure everybody understands, and you 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 make this clear in the book that we, you know when we're talking about a myth, a, a myth is uh, isn't a story that is 
necessarily completely untrue, but a story that has great power to move and resonates with certain psycho-societal needs, yearnings, and ideals, right? Exactly. A, a story that's clearly false uh, is not a myth. <laughs> I mean, in casual conversation, you know, tavern in tavern talk, right, uh, somebody can say, well, I won the state basketball tournament, and somebody say, that's baloney, that's a myth, right? And, and that's sort of a pedestrian use of the term. But really, myth, a myth is a group story. Uh, it's a story about how a group came came to be the group that it believes it is. It is, <laughs> which means I mean any kind of group story, right, is going to have kind of uh, indeterminate uh, characteristics to it, a kind of indeterminate origin for one thing. Uh, when when did this story or stories like it begin to be told? Who began to to tell them? And I think that I think that that uh, the Hanoi Jane image. Uh, fits into that kind of uh, literary lexicon. Uh, uh, it, it, it helps America remember. Now, unfortunately, you know, in the post-Vietnam War years, uh, helps America to remember itself, quote-unquote, the air quotes on that word remember or know itself, uh, as a nation that is, that is betrayed, uh, a nation that, that uh, was betrayed from within. I think that's a new American identity, which I've written more about in other places uh, than this book. But I think that with the Vietnam War, we, we kind of reversed course uh, from a nation that was destined as the city on the hill, uh, destined to lead the world into the future, uh, we became we became uh, a nation uh, with anything with a kind of a backward uh, looking a longing to restore some sense of glory that we had in the past. Uh, the past becomes the future in a sense. Let's get back to what we were supposed to be, right? Uh, there's a lot of a lot of postmodernist uh, riff in that, uh, and I, and I think that readers of the book will will find that. Uh, also, and I and and uh, I, I think that's where I think that's where we're at uh, with uh, with that sort of uh, with with those sorts of ideas. So yes, the the Hanoi Jane myth, if I understand it uh, correctly, conveys that America is or is supposed to be this invincible empire, and you know the golden age would be the the victory in world war two you know the right. superpower we are invincible and we we still should be that or would be that if not for these betrayers these traitors yeah. and uh hanoi jane is, right. is this one character we can focus on that really moves that myth along Absolutely. Well, even before World War II, if you go back to the founding years of this of this country, colonial America, I mean, the two great enemies uh, for colonial America uh, was the the Native American or the Indian population beyond the gates uh, that threatened the survival uh, of of the Puritans in in my part of of the country uh, in in New England. Uh, uh, and, but and but equally so. Uh, the weakness uh, within uh, those who those within the the Puritan community who would who would not have the strength 
to fight against uh, the enemy on the outside or who would even betray uh, the, the, uh, the, the good people on the, on, on the inside. And so the, the vict- the, really the test of America all, all along has been a test of that, that will to resist uh, that weakness on, on the inside. And the fact that America has endured for uh, 300 and some years is attributable in some people's minds to that, to that discipline, to that self-denial, uh, that, that, that the self-denial of that, as I phrase it in the book, that in, inner Indianism uh, with, within ourselves, that, that ability to put that down, right, and, to, and to, to remain resolute and strong and hard, right, and fight, fight of course, the enemy on the outside always, uh, but, but always that weakness on the inside. And, and I mean, if you follow that narrative right on into the Vietnam War years, then see, you see that's what surfaces. We didn't lose to the enemy on the outside. We didn't lose to the Vietnamese. You know, we didn't lose to what was beyond the gate. We lost to what was inside the gates. We lost to, we, it was our own weakness that defeated us. It, it was that, quote-unquote, femininity uh, that came to the surface, and that's why we lost. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that was just such a fascinating part of your book, and I, yeah, could you go into a little bit more about the, the, the sort of like the captivity narratives in, in American history and, and uh, people, the stories where they were captured by Indians, Native <laughs> Americans, and, yeah. and what, how that did a weird thing on the, the sort of psyche of who we thought we were. Yeah, well, I'm tempted to say no, I won't, because because then nobody will have to buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> but but one of one of the great one of the great myths coming out of the war in Vietnam, of course, is which involves Hanoi Jane, uh, is the the myth or the mythology surrounding the the POW and MIA stories out of Vietnam. I, I mean, in in some people's minds, the what what some Americans remember more than anything else about the war in Vietnam. Uh, is is the POW story the fact that there were POWs held in Hanoi, uh, you know, right up until the end of the war? Uh, the war was kept going uh, until we got the POWs back, uh, and and in in you know many people today believe that Jane Fonda betrayed the welfare of the POWs uh, in in Vietnam, and that's very much a part a part of the story. Now, the connection with that in the early American captivity narrative, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that some people are already you know making making these connections. I mean, you got prisoners, you got you got captives, and in the first years of American history, and and and, and the later on, there's got to be a connection here someplace, and and indeed. Indeed, there does. Uh, there is that connection, and and it is it is the story of discipline, uh, self self reliance, the idea that the pri- that the prisoners, the captives themselves, remain at war. That they are that they're not sidelined, uh, sort of in the you know the hockey game sense <laughs> of the penalty box, right? That they're sitting out the war. Uh, they're still very much very much in the war. John Smith. Uh, moving out of New England a little bit uh, to Jamestown, uh, John Smith was captured uh, uh, by the Indians, and and the whole point of the John Smith story, right, is that he was able to to stay true to the cause, right? That he was able to stay loyal 
uh, to the people back in Jamestown, and he was able to turn this really good deal, right, uh, that possibly is responsible for uh, he he was able to get uh, 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 you know favors for for Jamestown that enabled James, Jamestown to to survive. So he was he was a warrior while he was a captive, and and that same narrative runs then you know into the story of U.S. POWs at, in the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, uh, the real name is is the Wallow Prison uh, in in Hanoi, and that these guys were not just sitting out the war, right, uh, that they were carrying on a real war uh, within, uh, within the prison by way of, first of all, denying the North Vietnamese of information uh, that they thought was critical to the war effort. Uh, in the book, I raised some questions about that. Um, but they were also maintaining their discipline as warriors, uh, as, as soldiers. Uh, and it's Jane Fonda then uh, uh, who comes into the midst into their midst as this temptress, uh, you know, trying to soften them up, trying to woo them over, uh, trying to uh, break their discipline. So, so in in that moment, right in that POW story, in that moment, then the war really becomes a war between what Jane Fonda represents on the one hand, the permissiveness, uh, the, the the sexual female other. Uh, you know the, the the temptation, right? And on the other hand, uh, the male warriors who are who are impervious uh, to this temptation, right? Who who main, maintain their loyalty to the cause. They're not wooed by Jane Fonda uh, to the interests of, of of the and the legitimacy of the Vietnamese of the Vietnamese cause. And so these these men uh, stay loyal. They stay uh, uh, they stay disciplined. Uh, and they become role models then for <clears throat> for other soldiers uh, who were POWs at that time, but certainly for America going forward after uh, after the war in Vietnam. All right, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine, Robert Larson here, speaking with Jerry Lemke, and we're discussing his book, Hanoi Jane, War, Sex, and Fantasies of Betrayal. So, Jerry, there's this really deep-seated fear that goes back to the the captivity America uh, captivity narratives in early America. This, uh, uh, yeah, deep seated fear of becoming Indianized or becoming sympathetic to the native and you know the Puritan preachers, as you point out in the book, you know, warned against their congregants moving out into the wilderness and and yep. becoming like those guys, like those right. people. And so this uh, deep-seated fear moves forward into the Vietnam War and the yep. and and not only the the just the POWs but uh the the GIs fighting in in the jungle that they might uh, become sympathetic to villagers and that sort of thing. And and the term was even used in the Vietnam War was it not this fear of going native? Oh, absolutely, going native uh and among the POWs, uh, uh, the term uh, the white gook, uh, uh, gook referring, of course, uh, being a derogatory uh, racist term for the Vietnamese, uh, but that but that within some of the some of the POWs themselves, uh, and, and by the way, I get this from the uh, the, the memoirs that were written uh, by POWs. Most of those memoirs written by senior officers who were held. Uh, in Hanoi, I, I read. By the way, I read 
uh, all of the POW memoirs that, that had been written uh, up into the mid to late 1980s. And they referred to this, uh, uh, this fear of the white gook, uh, that some of their fellow prisoners uh, would allow their sympathies, uh, that's the gook part of it, their sympathies for the Vietnamese people and sympathies for the Vietnamese cause, uh, to to take over uh, and uh, cause them to defect, uh, if not literally. I mean, they're in prison, right? So they're not literally. They're not going to be able to defect, but emotionally and psychologically uh, defect to the enemy. And and these senior ranking officers uh, were very, uh, 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 you know, very uh, concerned about that. And they write about that years later. Now, the other thing about this is, is the the gender part of this. Again, going back to the captivity narratives of, of early America, these wonderful stories uh, of uh, of women, uh, Puritan women, who would be captured uh, uh, by the native people, uh, and then given the chance to return to go back to Boston, <laughs> they wouldn't. <laughs> they pre- they preferred to stay with. Oftentimes, not always, but they oftentimes preferred to stay with the Indians who had captured them. Uh, all of which raises, has raised throughout history, in some people's minds, sort of red flags, right, about the stability of women, the, uh, the stability about, again, the quote-unquote feminine uh, within the culture. And, of course, that comes again comes into play again during the Vietnam War years. I already said that a lot of the activists within the anti-war movement were women. A lot of the stylistic affections of the anti-war movement were, were, were feminine, long hair on men, you know, beads, uh, and so forth. Uh, worn by worn by women, and in uh, South Vietnam, for example, among the the troops uh, in South Vietnam uh, in 1969, uh, when I was there, uh, we would I, I I got into lots of big time trouble one time because I wore this giant peace symbol, <laughs> uh, you know, on a on a on an, as a necklace mm-hmm. on a big uh, metal chain around my neck. Now the peace symbol itself, of course. Uh, was, uh, you know, could be offensive to some professional military people, but wearing it around my neck as a chain, mm-hmm. I mean, this was at a time when men didn't wear <laughs> necklaces, right? And so there was a, a feminizing there uh, of the culture that I think, too, was, was very threatening uh, to some of the professional military people. Uh, could we go over, because I think this is important, because we hear the myth, you know, I live here in what has traditionally been very conservative Orange County, California, and so, so the myth, the, the, the Hanoi Jane myth is propagated uh, quite uh, uh, well here, and you still see uh-huh. the bumper stickers and all of that. Sure. Could, could, could we go over, like... Some of the the known facts about Jane Fonda's anti-war activities, and some of the things that we know are are, are not true, and how that went all together to creating this myth. Sure, I'll, I'll try to be quick, and then you, we can go over things again. But one of the facts is that Jane Fonda became active in the anti-war movement very late, uh, 1970, 1971. Uh, so she whatever contribution she made uh, was not was not of great uh, import uh, for the outcome of the war uh, and that's important because there are 
there are there's no seems to be no limit to the number of people these days who are willing to say that well we lost the war because of Jane Fonda, and uh, and and so I mean factually that is just you know that just uh, doesn't wash. Uh, one of the things that she did that, that was very important. Uh, she, along with Jules Pfeiffer, uh, Donald Sutherland, Holly Near, and some other people, founded uh, a theater group called FTA, uh, Free the Army or F the Army, <laughs> depending on who was using the term, that traveled around military bases, a kind of anti-Bob uh, Hope show or alternative to the Bob Hope show, a kind of variety show uh, that was music, that was theater, that was mostly a send-up of military authority. That was very popular with uh, GIs at the time. She went to Hanoi in 1972 as a peace activist. Fact, she was number 350-something of American peace activists who had uh, who had already been to Vietnam by that time. Uh, so she was late in the game. Uh, there were people more prominent than her who had already gone to Hanoi and who did many of the same things that she did. She made radio broadcasts from Hanoi in which she addressed herself to uh, soldiers still fighting. Uh, fact, uh, she did not encourage people to desert, much less defect, and go over and fight for the enemy. Some of the uh, uh, some other Americans who had already gone to, Viet to Vietnam did make radio broadcasts in which they uh, said those things. Most Americans don't would have no idea even who those people were <laughs> today, right? So it's why. So you know that's part of the what I write about. So why is Jane? Why is it Jane Fonda uh, who is remembered? She also visits POWs while she was there. Uh, other Americans went there. They also visited POWs. Fact: uh, she was not given little pieces of paper with their names on them so she could contact their families back in the States, and she gave those little pieces of paper to the guards who then beat and killed some of them. That part of the story is not true. Uh, fact, she was toured around Hanoi. She did visit an anti-aircraft gun site. Uh, photos were taken of her with that gun in the background. Uh, she was not aiming through the gun as if she was shooting at U.S. pilots. She was not posing for a photograph. Uh, she regrets allowing even her photograph uh, to be taken there. Uh, the fact, as, as, as nearly as I've been able to establish it, uh, and here I, I'd love to hear from, from other people on this, as nearly as I've been able to tell, nobody heard Jane Fonda's broadcast from Hanoi. Uh, there, were, there was almost nobody left in South Vietnam uh, in July of 1972 when she made those broadcasts. I mean, almost literally, there was one small unit of ground troops still left. Uh, as far as I've been able to figure out, and I, I welcome uh, new information on this, no pilots flying off aircraft carriers in the South China Sea ever heard those broadcasts. I'm not sure, by the way, uh, that any anybody in the South ever heard any of the American broadcasts. Uh, that question occurred to me kind of late in writing the book, uh, and I don't, so I don't raise it in the course of the book, but Pete Seeger uh, made radio broadcasts from Hanoi, sang songs from Hanoi. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if anybody ever heard uh, uh, Pete Seeger, <laughs> Pete Seeger, sing from Hanoi. I, 
I would love to have some uh, some document. We know he did it. Uh, that's not in question. But whether anybody ever heard that stuff, you know, I don't know. The U.S. military, of course, had those broadcasts. Could have had those broadcasts jammed. I would think that they that they would have. Um, but uh, but again, there, there's. I did try to find out things about that. I I I write in the book that uh, it. Uh, some evidence that I've un- uncovered says that those broadcasts uh, were, were 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 jammed, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, whether that's the last word on it or not, I don't know. We'd love to know more about that. Well, well, th- <laughs> thanks a lot. That was a lot of uh, quick facts there, and uh, so we, there are certain things that we we do know about Jane Fonda's anti-war activities that we can actually verify that are true, and then there are these other things that we see that <clears throat> are not really true right. and and some of them we can kind of see where this untrue story came from but a lot of it is just very murky where where that originated is that true sure and and that's why that's why it's good stuff for myth yeah exactly if, if all of this stuff was was uh, subject to empirical you know falsification or validation it, it wouldn't be working the way it does uh, what works is that there is so much in, in just in Jane Fonda's trip to Hanoi in 1972 that that kind of eludes uh, a, ver- a verification uh, that uh, that then sort of keeps these keeps these issues open. Uh, human imagination is a, is a wonderful thing, <laughs> right? And it tends to fill, fill in the blanks, right? Where where blanks where blanks appear, yeah. and and then you get p- plenty of stuff. Uh, you know, in popular culture, filmmakers' imaginations uh, are unlimited too, and you get uh, other political uh, groups, other political tendencies, suggesting things uh, to people, uh, and uh, and then those, those then also kind of excite the imagination uh, and help us uh, help us fill in uh, those kinds of things. So, yeah, a certain degree of, of murkiness is almost necessary for a powerful myth. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, uh, yeah, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI and Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with Jerry Lemke, and we're discussing his book, Hanoi Jane, War, Sex, and Fantasies of Betrayal. And, uh, Jerry, do you have any information you want to give out, such as a website or a way that people could contact you with uh, information? Well, uh, uh, information on me and publications and appearances uh, uh, is on the Holy Cross College uh, uh, webpage, uh, uh, holycross.edu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, can can get things there. Uh, uh, the book, of course, is available from UMass Press, uh, the publisher, and uh, available in uh, uh, independent bookstores. Uh, wherever your listeners are, and, of course, uh, the major uh, uh, chain uh, outlets, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, uh, and so forth. All right, so let's, let's bring this right up to the present, and Good. We, <laughs> we, we see this myth uh, reemerge in, in the war on terror, you know, the Iraq War, Afghanistan. Uh, so can you give us some examples of that? Oh, sure. Uh, the Rolling Stone article uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, by by Michael Hastings uh, on uh, Stanley McChrystal uh, that that article carried the epigram uh, that uh, uh, McChrystal uh, has kept his eye uh, on uh, the real enemy, 
kept his eye on on the real enemy. Now, just pause there, right? I mean, go back to the the American captivity narrative. Uh, go back to the the POW story in Vietnam. Where is the real enemy? Where is the real threat? The real threat is within. That mm. epigram gets finished with the real enemy, the wimps inside the White House, right? So wow. it's not it's not just that's the epigram uh, for this story in Rolling Stone. And I'm not sure actually people get that if they just got that story online. I got the hard, I raced right out and, <laughs> and, and bought the hard copy edition of, of Rolling Stone. And, and, um, and, and that's very important. It's not, and it's not, the real enemy is not just inside the gates, but the real enemy uh, is the femininity, right? Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the wimps, right? It's the men who are not really men. Right, who are the real enemy? I tell you, that's that's going to go down. That quote is going to go down as, uh, you know, as a whole book <laughs> uh, in American history, and it's very much the book uh, that uh, that 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 I've written. Right, is what I'm is what I'm writing about here. Uh, it's about betrayal. It's about defeat on the home front. Uh, it's about the enemy behind the lines, the enemy inside the gate. Uh, and the real, and it's not the real enemy inside, not just the collective self, but in, but also inside the individual self. It's that it's that weakness in American masculinity uh, that is feared, or maybe rephrased, the fear of weakness within American masculinity that is that is the real threat. Right to yeah. American to American security, uh, and that issue of Rolling Stone, I, I blogged about that. Uh, was invited to blog about that on the Washington Post. Uh, the the image of, of a Lady Gaga uh, with these uh, M4s uh, coming out of her chest. The women with the woman with guns, uh, and 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 what I raised questions about whether that's was it just a coincidence, right, <laughs> that this appears on that cover of of uh, Rolling Stone, right? Or does this connect with the idea of the female other possibly being more powerful, being stronger, having male capacities? Uh, and that's, I connected that up in that blog with the cover of our book, uh, Barbarella on the cover of, of my book. You know, has a big gun <laughs> that she carries, a big fantasy gun, a big fantasy gun that she carries in the film Barbarella. And then there's Jane Fonda on the gun uh, uh, in in Vietnam, a gun that in some fantasies, right, is the gun that is that she is using uh, to shoot down American American flyers. So this, you know, the very powerful woman, uh, the woman with guns, <laughs> right, uh, uh, is, is, is an expression of uh, a threat, uh, an insecurity in American, in American masculinity that, that men, feel, men feel threatened by. And it's a threat within themselves. They feel threatened by that feminine, femininity uh, with, within themselves. I know I'm waxing a bit Freudian there. But I don't think, and, and I'm not, um, you know, I didn't come to my Freudianism, <laughs> uh, you know, through academic uh, education, uh, you know, but, but rather through really a search for ways to understand what's going on uh, in both the individual psychology of American men and within the collective psychology of, of America. And I think that all roads lead <laughs> back 
Detective Wright. <laughs> Not that there are answers there, uh, but that but there are questions there that we wouldn't otherwise ask. Ooh. And yeah, and I and I hope that and I hope that that's kind of what my book does. I mean, if people finish reading my book and say. I, you know, huh? <laughs> but it's a different huh than they had when they went into reading the book. Uh, I'll be very happy. Well, yeah, yeah, I definitely think those uh, uh, Freudian uh, implications are, are are appropriate, and I also think there's also a, a sort of Jungian element here too when we you know talk about the, the collective. Uh, uh, psychology and oh yeah yeah and but uh, gosh we're just about out of time if uh, Jerry anything else you want to make sure we talk about I, when you mentioned the the uh, Hanoi Jane myth arising again and you mentioned characters and uh, John Kerry Cynthia mm-hmm. McKinney John Walker Lynn all the stuffs in the book so sure. uh, those of you listening this gives you more reason to to read the book you can find out more about all of that and uh yeah so anything else you want to just uh, leave us with Jerry before we got to close out yeah well very cl- quickly sort of the legacy of that um, I, I have a whole chapter in the book uh, uh that includes characters uh, like uh, Delilah in the Bible La Malinche uh Lysistrata, <laughs> uh Matahari Tokyo Rose uh uh, which I think is all all part of it. Uh, uh, certainly, Hanoi Jane runs ahead to the present, but there's a lot of progenitors to Hanoi Jane too, and uh, and I think that gives uh, the story a lot of depth. Yeah, a, a great read, and uh, yeah, and you mentioned the the book cover, and I'm looking at it now, and it it's a, it's a great uh, <laughs> image, and you know, or a dual image, and uh, yeah, it just uh, that 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 image alone, <laughs> or dual image, I should say says a lot and people that that do understand uh psychology will look at that and and uh understand what it is you're trying to convey it came very clearly to me without yeah. even reading the book and then it became even uh more ingrained so uh jerry lemke thanks so much for spending this time with us and uh yeah hanoi jane war sex and fantasies of betrayal uh a wonderful work uh, thanks again all right, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye now. All right, yes, uh, that is uh, Hanoi Jane, War, Sex, and Fantasies of Betrayal. Uh, check that book out. Jerry Lemke, the author, and his last name is L-E-M-B-C-K-E. And, uh, yeah, I want to make sure we uh, close things out here on time today and uh, because we've got more great programming coming up in about five minutes here with Matt Kaplan. Counterspin and Planetary Radio. And I'll be back uh, with you next week for more uh, uh, fascinating discussion on political issues uh, and other uh, things that will uh, pull you out of your doldrums. (laughs) All right, and I'll remind you once more, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I certainly always appreciate that. Again, it's rglarson at org or Facebook, facebook.com slash rglarson. And I'm going to leave you with some music from Towns Van Zandt. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI. Robert Larson saying I'll be talking to you next week.